bearing, bearing the burdens. I'm excited to see how God's going to speak to our hearts this evening as we look at this wonderful portion of Scripture tonight. And uh, I encourage you to just allow your heart to be open and ready for what God has for us. Let's look at the book of James this evening. Chapter 5, verse number 7 this evening. We'll read through verse number 11 as we continue contextually looking at this wonderful and glorious book. The Bible says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the fruitman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. God, once again, I need your help. I need your mind. I need your, I need your wisdom this evening. God, please help me to wisely speak your truth tonight as we think about bearing the burdens. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard the statement, life isn't fair? I remember my parents telling me that often as I was complaining about something that was going on in my life. I, I would hear, Justin, life isn't fair. But have you really stopped and considered that thought for just a moment, that statement? We hear it often as maybe troubles or difficulties come our way. We're struggling in some way, shape, or form. And we hear that thought, life isn't fair. There's really two main thoughts to that phrase. The one, th one thought is that there are wrongs that happen to all of us because of sin, because of sinfulness in us or the sinfulness around us. And that wrong that's been done to us will not be made right. You know, when that is stated in that context, that life isn't fair in that way, do you know that that is contrary to Scripture? That's not a biblical statement at all. In fact, that's denying the righteousness and the holiness of God. That's contrary to Scripture because God says that he's going to make every wrong right. We're going to look at that in just a few moments. But there's another thought to it, that every life is different and no two lives are identical. What we might think as unfair that someone has a talent that I don't have, or someone has a skill set that I don't have, or vice versa. And I think, uh, why don't I have that? And that's not fair. If we think about it in that way, that we're not identical, that is a biblical statement in that we aren't identical in every way. Now, I'm not saying the spirit behind that is biblical, but the fact that it's speaking into the uniqueness that God gives to all people, that is right scripturally. 
God has made all of us different. God has made all of us unique. All of us struggle in different areas. All of us have different personalities. All of us have unique strengths. All of us have a different character, a different appearance, a hair color, an eye color, and even a skin color. We have many, many differences. All of us come in shapes and different shapes and sizes. All of us truly are made unique in the sight of God. There's no two people identical. How incredible that is. Our experiences are all unique. Our circumstances are all unique. And God truly makes it so that there is no nothing that is patterned exactly the same. And I'm thankful for that. If all of us were completely identical, were completely the same in every area of our life, this world would be pretty monotonous, would it not? We'd be going through life and we know exactly what's going on in the next person's life because it's exactly like ours. And there would be no difference there. It would truly be a monotonous creation. I'm thankful that God is not monotonous, that he is more creative tonight than anyone or anything. There's no one like our creative God. But we think about that phrase, life isn't fair. And often as we think about that, we speak of the struggles, do we not? It's not fair that I'm going through this. It's not fair that I'm placed in a situation. It's what we speak to when we say that often. This is a burden. This is a weight that I'm struggling with. I'm trying to lift this, but it's hard. It's difficult. It's not fair. God teaches us that he and his incredible goodness enables us to shoulder, to handle, to pick up the burdens that he allows present in our life. Let's look at four thoughts tonight. I don't think we're going to spend a long time on any of them. Uh, We'll see how the Holy Spirit works here tonight. But I want us to look as we look through, once again, contextually through this portion of Scripture First of all, I want you to see the thought that I can bear the burden because of Christ's imminent return. Look at verse number 7 with me once again, therefore. Notice the Bible says, Be ye patient, therefore. Hmm. Have you ever struggled with patience? (laughs) We live in a world that is not very patient, is it? We have drive throughs that you can get your food in just a few moments. We have microwaves that will cook our food in just a few seconds, it seems. And even then, it's too slow. We want it to be faster. Come on, I need it instant right away. We have kettles that will boil water in just a moment or two. It's incredible at all the comforts that we have that seek an instant gratification. If you want to see the news or see the reports from around the world, all you've got to do is go online, do a quick Google search, and you can see the reports from Japan, parts of Africa, South America, you name it, you can find the the answer. It's instant in front of us. 
James teaches us, be ye patient. This isn't in my notes, but if you look at the last phrase or last part of that sentence, there's a punctuation mark. Full stop. (laughs) This is a command. In other words, sometimes we have to command our own patience. That's a hard thing sometimes, isn't it? We've learned a little bit about patience, or I hope you've been spiritual enough to learn some patience over these last 12 months. Patience with one another, patience even with our situations, dealing with these lockdowns and all the different things that we've dealt with. Lord willing, we've been spiritual enough to learn the command that God has presented to us, to be patient patience notice james says be patient therefore often i'll hear a preacher say if you see the word therefore you ought to see what it's there for what what is why it's there why it's present in that statement what are the therefores why is that there well let's just do a quick synopsis of james as we have taught through it over these last months and much time In chapter 1, we saw that there's trials and temptations. James says, be ye patient. In chapter 2, James taught about poverty and the preferential treatment that Christians were given to those who were rich or who had some status in society. James says, be ye therefore patient. In chapter 3, we saw about hurtful communication, the hurt that Christians inflict upon one another. James says, be ye therefore patient. In chapter 4, he speaks about the fighting and warring among Christian brethren. And he says, be ye therefore patient. In the first part of chapter 5, in the first six verses, we saw last time James speaking about the uh, uh, sinfulness of those who were practicing corrupt business and were unpaid uh, not paying the wages that were uh, that were ought to be paid or dealing cruelly in business in an unethical and a unchristian like manner the lost world and the saved were doing likewise and among all of this james says be patient therefore brethren If you're a saved, born-again child of God, that is a command to me, and it's a command to you to be patient. Through all this, James says, be patient. But why are we to be patient? Why should we be patient among these circumstances, among these things that James has covered over a myriad of topics as he saw some cruelness, he saw some sinfulness among the brethren. And James was incredibly wise as he pastored in, uh, as he pastored in Jerusalem. He pastored in a hostile environment. He pastored in an environment in which he had to walk circumspectly carefully among a society that was looking to find fault with him and for years he navigated the landmines of the pharisees and the sadducees looking to condemn him with great wisdom 
he would be eventually martyred because of his preaching for his half-brother, Jesus Christ, as Savior. But before then, he truly learned how to walk wisely. And a key is found here in verse number 7. James says, Be ye patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. James says we can be patient. Why? Because the Lord is coming. What was he speaking of? He was speaking of that glorious return in which Jesus Christ would catch away the church and bring us to himself, meet him in the clouds above. The Bible speaks of this as what we would call as the rapture or that catching away Look at 1 Thessalonians with me, chapter 4, starting in verse number 13. I want us to see and be mindful of how James was teaching and employing our heart to be patient. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is coming. Because the, com- the return of Jesus Christ, that rapture is coming. And by the way, it's closer at this moment than it was an hour ago. He is coming soon. The Bible says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will uh, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, we have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us... Let us watch and be sober for they that sleep, sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the help of the hope of salvation for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Paul comforted the church in Thessalonica with the thought that Jesus is coming. Why 
is that thought comforting because we'll be taken out of this sinful world? And I don't know about you, but I'm ready for that day. I'm ready for that day in which the trump of God shall sound, the voice of God shall shout, and oh, how what a wonderful thing it will be when we are caught up with him in the clouds to forever then be with the Lord. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Oh, I'm looking forward to that day. And oh, my friends, as we enter into that wonderful, glorious, eternal life with God forever and ever, the Bible teaches us that as the tribulation occurs, that we will stand before God in the judgment seat of Christ and God is going to make all wrongs between believers right and it will be settled there in heaven. What a wonderful thing it is that those wrongs that have been done between the believers will be settled. We can be comforted for the day of the Lord. Why? Because God is going to make all accounts settled once and for all. But not only is he going to make all the accounts settled once and for all among the brethren, he's going to settle all accounts. The Bible speaks that after the tribulation Once the rapture happens, seven years of tribulation will take place. It will be war and disaster and much struggle and tribulations here on this earth. And at the end of seven years, Jesus is coming again. He is coming to set up his millennial rule and reign of Christ. The Bible speaks of this in Matthew chapter 24 as Jesus speaks of that time. In verse number 29, we see this thought immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The Bible then teaches us that for a thousand years Jesus will rule righteously here on this earth. Righteous judgment will take place during that thousand years. Right will be done. Justice will be given. And it will be a glorious ruling and reigning of Christ. We will get to rule and reign with him, the Bible says. And what a wonderful thing it will be to be under the rule of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then at the end of a thousand years... And of course, I'm hitting highlights. There's going to be wars, and we understand that. But after the end of a thousand years, there will be another war. And after that war, Satan will will finally be defeated for all of eternity. Before a new heaven and a new earth is made, God is going to make every wrong right. Every wrong right. Notice the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20, look at this verse with me, please. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them and I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hell were delivered up to the dead which were which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works 
and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God tells us that at that great white throne judgment, he is going to make every wrong right. The coming of the Lord is that in which we can find a reason for patience because God will make every wrong right. Notice that God never tells us that those wrongs will be made right in our lifetime. That's hard for us because we've got to go back to James 5, don't we? Be patient, therefore. God's time frame of justice is not always our time. But watch this, his time is always perfect. Notice how James illustrates this. Look at that last phrase of verse number seven. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. My grandparents had a farm 80 acres in which they farmed part of it and part of it on their property they had fruit that they would grow they had trees that they had uh, that had fruit on them cherry apple uh, there was some uh, peach trees and other trees that they had there we enjoyed the fruit of that but one of the things in which my grandfather years ago we called him grandpa schubert did years ago was plant a vine, a grapevine. You know, when you plant a grapevine, you put it in the ground, you make sure that it's, of course, planted well and the roots have fertile soil to grow in. And then you wait. And you wait. And you wait. That vine begins to grow. And as that vine begins to grow, you nurture that vine and tie that vine into a lattice work so that way it could continue to grow and further so the grapes may one day come. Supports are built for the vine and lattice work or other structures are built to make sure that those vines can grow and can continue. And from what I remember as I was thinking through the stories as I was preparing for this, I remember how my Grandma Schubert, as we would call her, would talk of my grandfather. My grandfather died of cancer when I was just five years old, and so I have vague memories of him. But she would often tell the story as we enjoyed the grapes of that vine of how he had worked and labored and cared and nurtured those vines and saw some fruit he enjoyed some of the grapes he enjoyed some of the fruit that came from those vines but he never saw from what i understand the fullness of those vines I remember as 
a young man and a teenager, those vines being full and the fruit just blossoming off of those vines, of literally just bunches and bunches of grapes being picked and enjoying uh, those fresh grapes and enjoying that fresh fruit from the vine. But it took years. It took time to enjoy the abundance. It didn't happen overnight. It demanded patience. James speaks of this. He says, until he received the early and latter rain. Speaking of a time frame and harvest and did some studying on this and uh, as I did some studying on this, I saw a time frame in which the vines would be nourished and they would be tended and of course groomed. And in this area of the world, in the Israel area, in that Middle East area, often in, at the end of October there would begin a time of rain and at that time of rain would be a time in which you would plant more vines or that you would plant more fruit or more, uh, or more things to prepare for the winter. Ahead for the winter would be the rainy season, the rainy time in which, of course, crops would be nourished and then would be ready for the harvest coming in summer. You see, summer is dry. The soil is hard. And at that first and early rain the ground is softened and prepared for a harvest or the seed to be planted, the vines to be given. And from what I understand, during the winter, there is rain and there is uh, the uh, occasional bit of snow that comes. And during this time, of course, is fruitful time for the grapes to begin to flourish and to build and to grow. And then when it becomes March and April, about this time of the year would be the latter rain. And after, of course, that latter rain, when the, when the rain would, be, would end, at, that, at the following months would, of course, would bring forth much abundance and much fruit would come after that latter rain. But it started months and months before, before you could ever enjoy the fruit. It started much, um, much time before, before that season of harvest would come if you're going to plant a fruit tree you don't plant a peach seed and expect the next day for it to be giving forth much peaches why because you know it needs to take time it must take root it must grow it must develop leaves the branches must spread out fruit uh, the blossoms must go the fruit must begin to grow and it must become ripe in order for it to be the satisfying peach we desire there's a lot of time that goes into that we must be patient because god's time frame is perfect that harvest for that perfect righteousness, that perfect judgment, that perfect settling of all accounts will come, but it may not come even in our own lifetime. It might come in eternity future. But you can be promised of this, that God will make every wrong
James, as he comforts the brethren, says, be patient. God knows. Everything will be sorted. Secondly, I can bear the burden because of the Lord's promise. What another comforting statement here in verse number eight. Look at it with me, please. Be ye also patient. (laughs) I love how James drives home this thought, not once in verse number seven, but twice, because he knows that we struggle with this. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I struggle with this. I struggle with this patience. And if you're honest, there are times in which you struggle with this patience. This is something in which we need to not only command ourselves, but we need to command ourselves again. Okay, I've been patient. Now I need to be patient again. I need to be a little more gracious. I need a little more understanding, a little more long-suffering here. I've been patient for some time, and I'm going to continue in patience. James says, in case you forgot about patience between verse number 7 and verse number 8, let me remind you, be patient. Be ye also patient. And as he reminds us of patience, how glorious it is that he puts this phrase in there. Of course, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Establish your hearts. That word establish there means to comfort or strengthen. It means to make more marked by firm determination or resolution. When we are patient, when it looks like all we're doing is simply sowing and sowing and sowing, or all we are doing is seemingly spinning our wheels at times in our life where it seems like the harder we move or the harder we try, the harder we work, or the more we pray or the more we read the word of God. And it seems like we're just spinning and not going anywhere. God says, be patient and establish your heart. Strengthen your heart. Understand that as we develop a character, as we develop that strength of continually following the Lord and Uh, and being obedient to him, even in the times when there is no fruit, what happens as we continue to go forward? We continue to be faithful. God establishes, God strengthens, God takes our roots and he grows them deeper into Christ. We become, as Paul taught the church in Colossae, rooted in Christ. Our roots are strengthened. My friends, for a tree to be able to bear more fruit, its roots must establish. And James is speaking into that very thought, just as he speaks of the harvest, when there are times when you are waiting for the harvest and it doesn't seem like it's ever coming, James reminds us that our hearts are being established as we are being faithful and obedient to him our hearts are growing when it doesn't look like there is growth happening externally or results are happening like we intend god says our hearts are being rooted and are being established firmer in the character of god and that is something in which no one can take away think about this for just a moment In the early part of this chapter, he tells the people, he tells the rich men 
to be careful of their corrupt business practices, saved and unsaved alike. James does so as a warning because he understood that riches can be taken in a moment. However, <clears throat> excuse me, character, as it develops and we strengthen in the Lord, it develops a deep root, a deep strengthening, and it prepares us for what lies ahead. It builds character. It builds spiritual strength in our heart and life. Isaiah warned the children of Israel about the coming of the day of the Lord. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And as James or as, as Isaiah warned of the day in which the coming of the Lord was going to be, he mentioned that there was going to be wars. He mentioned that there was going to be famine, death, disaster, oppression, and panic among society. But through it all, there is still God. Oh, don't forget about that, my friends. Don't ever forget that through all the circumstances and situations of life, no matter where life takes, no matter what takes in place, that you are not expecting or are expecting, God is still God. God is still there. I love how Isaiah put it in Isaiah 26, 3, that will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in me there's a strengthening there's a peacefulness there's a deepening of roots and of strength that comes when we count on the lord's promise when we understand that we can bear the burdens that have been placed upon us the burdens of an unjustness being done to us, the burdens of slander being given against us, the burdens of fightings and warrings around us, among the saved, of the, bad, the, the burdens of, of our employer treating us unjustly. God says you can handle these things. You can bear these burdens. Why? Because the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. God, the day is coming. You can trust God that there is coming a day and that day will be with the Lord Jesus Christ. God's promised and we can bear the burden through his promise. Thirdly, I can bear the burden because of God's sufficiency. Look at verse number nine with me, please. Grudge not against one another, and notice this statement, brethren. We saw in verse number one of the same chapter how Paul, or excuse me, how James make sure the dialogue of the following instruction was to be carefully interpreted as to the rich men, saved and unsaved. And here in this verse, in these contexts, he has reaffirmed in our hearts that he's no longer speaking to just the, or, or, or to the unsaved and the saved. He is now speaking to the brethren, those who are born again, children of God, to the saved. And once again, he affirms it here. He says, grudge not against one another, brethren. That word grudge there is the word complain. But the context of it is a deep-seated complaint. Something that has come into our heart 
that gives us reason to muse and to complain about another saved, born-again child of God. We need to be careful with this because James says, grudge not. In other words, do not hold a grudge. We like to spiritualize this, do we not? <laughs> we hold a grudge because, after all, we want the right words to say when we're going to take our grievances to that brother or sister in Christ. We want to have the full ammunition ready to unleash upon that individual. We're going to do so in nuclear fashion. And we are holding a grudge and developing and nursing it and it brings bitterness and a poison to our heart that when our mouth does open, that complaint uh, brings deep wounds into the heart and God says that is not a spiritual trait. And we like to say, well, I wasn't prepared to speak about this thing and God says, grudge not, (laughs) don't hold A grudge, don't hold in contempt. When there is something that's going on, don't give the place for the devil. Get it right. Get that uh, 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 that sorted between that brother or sister in Christ and make sure you have a clear account before the Lord. Why? Because here's what James says. Look at it. Lest ye be condemned. We enjoy the spiritual aspect and looking spiritual, do we not? (laughs) Sometimes we're very good at that. (laughs) Very good at that. We like to be sanctimonious. Oh, I've prayed about this for much time. And after praying about this for much time, here is why I think I don't like you. It's because of this, 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 and this. (laughs) Wait a minute. James says, lest ye be condemned. What is James doing? He's flipping the script. He's saying, look, the one that might be holding the grudge, think about this, you might be in the wrong. It may not be the one you're holding the grudge against that isn't a wrong. It might be you who are wrong, who are holding the grudge. I'm holding and nursing that complaint. And God says, be careful with that. James says, be warned of that. You are the one that may be at fault. Understand there's two sides to every story. Every story. So often in our media, we hear of two vast parallels. Vast parallels. Seems like there's no middle ground to the reports. You either look at it one way, and if you don't look at it my way, you must be wrong. Or if you don't look at it in this perspective, you must be wrong. And God says, wait a minute. Often, the middle is what is truth. Often, the middle of that situation, the middle of both stories, you'll find the truth of the situation. Often. Not every time, but often. We need to be careful as we interact with one another that we don't get ourselves into a place 
where we are thinking we are acting spiritually when really we are the ones that need to be careful because God says, behold, the judge, God himself, standing before the door. God sees it. God knows what's going on. The Lord is watching. He's standing at the door and he will make the wrong right, but it's not the wrong that you were thinking was going to be made right. The wrong that may be made right is in the one who is holding the grudge. What does that speak to? That I can't find solace in the moment of interaction between brethren. If I count on my brethren to bring me sufficiency, I'm going to fail. I'm going to struggle. But if I look to God and I see that God is the one that is right and just, I can find solace and help. I can bear the burden. Why? Because I'm counting on God to make it right. I'm not going to grudge. I'm not going to bring my complaint, spiritualize my complaint. I'm just going to let God take care of it and let God make the wrong right. God is sufficient. Lastly, this evening, James says, I can bear the burden because of God. We need no other reason. I can bear the burdens God gives us because of who God is. James gives us two thoughts. Look at verse number 10 with me, please. He teaches us about the prophets. Notice how James now illustrates and ties this, the, uh, these, words, these verses together. He says, Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Hardly any of the prophets were welcomed by their contemporaries. The two who did have instant and spectacular results were Jonah and Nahum, both of whom prophesied against the same city, Nineveh. In the one case, Jonah preached instantaneous repentance resulted. The other case, when Nahum preached instantaneous and spectacular ruin occurred. For the most part, prophets were highly unpopular preachers to the consciences of their countrymen. Hosea was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Amos was doubtless popular enough in Israel as long as, of course, he denounced the surrounding nations. But the high priest of the calf cult threatened him at once when he denounced Israel. Micah was the first prophet to threaten Jerusalem with destruction. He must have been as popular as a skunk at a Sunday school picnic. Habakkuk was called upon to utter woe after woe against his countrymen. Haggai saw success, but his contemporary and colleague Zechariah was murdered. Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Isaiah, Isaiah, after a distinguished career, was sawn in half in a hollow tree by Manasseh. And as for Jeremiah, he wept his way through life. John the Baptist was murdered, and so Jesus Christ. 
God used prophets in times of crisis and apostasy. But he never promised them in their ministry success. He never promised them that they were going to build great cathedrals or great temples or even great ministries. Their call was based upon conviction and courage and plentifully seasoned with patience. The prophets struggled. The prophets, as we see through Scripture, struggled, some even with deep depression. But the Lord was with them every step of the way. God was there. He encouraged them to do not dismay. He encouraged him that things may not go like they anticipate, but they were assured of that inseparable and uh, inseparable love of God and his incredible rich goodness that will strengthen them in times of the burden. Such is the case with you and I. James used that as an illustration just as the prophets endured burdens, endured struggles, endured difficulties, and just as they had to learn and to understand that conviction and promise was going to be the basis of how they were going to operate their life, God would then help them through patience to season the work that he had for them to do. Whether it was the result that he desired, whether it was the result that they were possibly looking for or expecting, or whether it was no result at all, God stated, I'm going to use these men these prophets through difficult time, they're going to suffer some affliction, but they are going to endure it with patience. Thank God they endured it with patience. Because they endured it with patience, we have books of the Bible like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Haggai, Zechariah, and on and on we can go. Thank God they endured those tribulations and trials. God used them in that to give us scripture, to give us his very word. God used the prophets and James pulls them out as an illustration stating, remember the prophets, remember all that they suffered, remember their difficulties, their sufferings, their trials, remember what they went through and remember that as they endured with patience, you can endure with patience. Why? Because the same God that Isaiah had we have that same God. The same God that, uh, that uh, Jeremiah had is our same God. The same God that Nahum and Habakkuk had is the same God whom we serve. He, they, have the, they had the same God and he never changes. And he is what they needed and he's what we need if we trust that he can help us to bear the burdens presented. How incredible it is that God gave us the prophets as an illustration in one way of how we can endure with, endure with patience. He teaches us through prophets. Then he teaches us with a testimony. Look at verse number 11 and we're done. Behold, we count them happy. Wait a minute. 
James is talking about burdens, about difficulty, struggles, areas that are sometimes deeply personal and deeply affecting our hearts. And just as the prophets endured those things, he says we count them happy. That word happy is the word blessed. He says we look and see that their lives were blessed because they endured. They endured in their lives. And God saw fit to put their lives in Scripture so we can look back and say, yes, they were blessed. And we do. Were their lives difficult? Absolutely. But they were blessed. He concludes with an illustration. A very personal illustration of a man named Job. Notice how James writes, Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. James uses an illustration from a man named Job. I'm going to ask Jonathan, if he would, to join me on the pulpit or on the platform here. I want to illustrate this here this evening. Job had a life that truly demanded patience. He had to endure some things. Go ahead and turn around and just stand facing forward. The Bible teaches us that he was a just man. He was a godly man. His testimony was good. He had a testimony that was flawless, if we can put it that way. He had a testimony that was proper before others. People looked to Job for wisdom. And the Bible tells us that Satan began to meddle in Job's circumstances. Satan was given liberty to bring some things into Job's life, and I want to allow Jonathan to illustrate Job and the Bible says that and teaches us that God allowed Satan to come and to take all or give him a burden of all of his finances. Remember, it was an agricultural society. This agricultural society dealt with a richness or a livelihood of animals as being your means of of wealth means of funds wasn't money like we see money today but rather livestock was so important and all of his livestock was taken away not just simply his cattle not just simply hold them out if you would like this both hands if you would please keep your hands open but god also saw fit to take away his sheep and even his camels. There were some burdens. But not only were there burdens, and those were given, if you would take a step this way, just so that way we're on camera. We're still on camera, aren't we, David? Okay, good. I wanted to make sure that we weren't getting off camera here. God not only allowed his livestock to be taken away, but his children, the Bible says, 
were all killed. The burdens were mounting. Is that getting a little heavier? Yeah. It is, isn't it? The burdens are mounting. But Satan was unhappy. Because the Bible teaches us in Job chapter 1, in verse number 20, how Job responded when these burdens were placed upon him. Look at it. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Notice this statement now. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But watch this. Notice how the Bible continues. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job was willing to handle the burdens that were take place. Why don't you step up there just that way? Come behind you here and add more burdens upon you because that's exactly what Satan did. Satan came and said, Job, okay, you're not going to, take, you're not going to uh, uh, mistrust me because finances are taken away and your children are all dead. He says, let me add another burden to you. He says, I'm going to struggle with your health. Your health is going to be taken away. You are going to be sitting in a pile of ashes, scraping yourself off. Your body is going to be wounded from the head of your feet to the sole of your the head of your uh, head, the top of your head to the bottom of your soles of your feet. I'll get it right here in just a moment. And uh, to have the head of the top of your bottom of your feet, isn't it? I don't know how that works, but that's somewhere in the Bible. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, there was some uh, there was some personal disease and disease truly infected and uh, impaired Job. But not only that, but then after all of this, the Bible teaches us that his wife came to him. His wife came to him and told him to do just this very thing. Look at uh, Job chapter 2, verse number 10. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the said charge god in other words she says just end your life say it's god's fault and as you say and claim it's god's fault your life will be ended god's going to take it and he said thou speakest as one of the foolish foolish women speak what shall we receive good at the hand of the lord and shall we not receive evil not only did all of these things take place but the bible teaches us that his wife turned on him all of those who are married, you understand what happens when, <clears throat> when your wife is at odds with you. It vexes your heart to its very deepest core. And the Bible tells us that this burden truly was troublesome. Now Job was coming to a burden that was getting heavy. It's getting heavy, isn't it? It is, is it not? But not only, but this wasn't even done. The burdens were building. The struggle is real. But watch this. It continued as Job's friends came. And Job's friends said, Job, the reason why you're going through this is because you're not right with God. And because you're not right with God, they began to accuse him of all kinds of things. They added to his burdens. They added to the woes in which he was doing. They accused him, 
And the burden was real. But watch this. I love how James puts this. The Bible tells us in verse number 11 that the Lord is very pitiful. We look at that word and sometimes if we're not careful, we can use that in a different situation in which God intended. That word pitiful means full of pity or compassionate or tender-hearted. Job, as, as God saw Job and the burdens in which he struggled, God said, I am compassionate. I'm tender-hearted. He didn't simply step away and say, okay, Job, deal with it all on your own. No, in fact, he went to Job and he says, Job, I am compassionate. I am full of tender care for you. I want to help you in this way. And I want to help and to care for one of my children. The psalmist writes it this way in Psalms Psalms 103, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. He knows that we're frail. He knows that we struggle with burdens. And he says, Job, I haven't left you. I want you to understand that I'm compassionate here and that God not only is compassionate, but he is merciful. The Bible says in verse number 17 of that same portion of scripture, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and is righteous unto children's children. The Bible says in verse number 11 of the same chapter, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. We look at that wonderful promise and we thank God, but here is the wonderful mercy of God. God says, I'm here with you, Job. I am compassionate. I know it's a struggle. I know you're, I, I, I know you're straining under this load, but I want you to know that I love you. I'm not missed. Uh, I, I, I'm not away from you. I have mercy and I'm going to make things right. I'm going to care for it. I'm going to help you with the burdens. Now, Job struggled with this. We need to have a picture of this here, that God doesn't simply step away and walk away, but rather he comes and he says, I'm I'm walking through this with you. I'm allowing you to go through this for a reason because it is going to build things in your life that will help you. And notice how the Bible says, at the end of the Lord, what happened? Job struggled with this. You just, you're, you're, you're struggling, aren't you? <laughs> the cam- every, everyone in the camera is being very compassionate right now, and I'm just being a, a mean father. That's what I'm being right now. No. Here's, what, here's what God does. He comes and he says, I understand you're struggling, Jonathan, or Job. Let me take this. Job's ready to give this burden away, isn't he? He's like, I'm ready to give this. I'm ready to take this. I'm ready to handle this. And he takes it from Job. Watch this. Do you feel a little burdened or a little unburdened right now? But if we did this for some time, you would be stronger, wouldn't you? You sure would. He would be stronger. Why? Because you learn to bear under the burdens. You learn to grow deep-rooted when the burdens are present. And then when God comes and when he says, you've carried the burden long enough, and he takes it, you've grown. What happened when Job had that burden taken? 
What happened when Job had that completely removed? Here's what happened. God restored his relationship with his wife. God gave him more children. And God gave him twice what he started with. Not because Job was some great Christian, but because he had great patience. Knowing that God was in control. Job would be vindicated. Everything would be made right. But he had to learn some patience so he could see the blessing of the end of the Lord. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate that. You see, when we understand that God is there, He's never leaving us. He doesn't forsake us. He does never, He never, ever, ever steps away from us. And when we understand this, He allows us to carry those burdens so at the end, when we see Him, we can hear those words, well done well done oh how wonderful would it be to meet god presenting those burdens god saying you were patient you carried them you shouldered them it was hard you strained but you bore your burdens. May I encourage you tonight that the burdens that you are bearing are never too strong for the Lord to handle. He's full of compassion. He is of tender mercy. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And those burdens that he gives us to carry, to lift. Are there for a reason? To make us stronger through patience. May I encourage you tonight to be patient. May I encourage you tonight to follow the leading of God. And as he follows and as he gives some things for us to bear, know that he's never given us more than what we could handle. He 